Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, cultural enrichment, and all-inclusive fares. Discover more at viking.com. It started with a story that I wrote about two sisters who took a DNA test. They discovered several surprises that they were half-sisters, not full siblings, as that they had been led to believe. And they discovered that each of their parents had had a child outside of the marriage. They met a half-brother that they didn't know existed. The story was not just a surprise story, but it also touched on ethical questions that have come up over and over because the sisters didn't see eye to eye on what their parents should have told them about their genetic origins. Hi, my name is Amy Doxer-Marcus. I'm a staff reporter for The Wall Street Journal. I cover health and science. When that story came out, it just sparked this overwhelming response from readers. I got hundreds of emails from people, and many of them wanted to share their own DNA journeys with me, including surprises. I think I'm like 98.9% sure this is your father. And then I said, oh my God, I know this man. I recognize this name. And she was driving in her car with her husband and her husband saying, who are you talking to? And her response to her husband was, no, 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 I think I have a new brother on the phone. Maybe it's just part of our human experience, part of our human need to know some of our stories, for good or for ill. It's been 75 years since scientists discovered that DNA is the substance of heredity. It's what our genes are made of, handed down from our parents. An organism's complete set of DNA, including all of its genes, is called its genome. In 2003, scientists announced they had successfully completed sequencing the human genome, meaning that they had determined the exact order of the approximately 3 billion DNA base pairs found in the genome. And what they found was astonishing. More than 99% of the sequencing is identical for every human being on the planet. What remains is what makes us unique. And that part holds a lot of secrets about where we come from and who we come from. From The Wall Street Journal, this is the future of everything. I'm Kateri Yoakum. Over the past few years, private companies have turned unlocking those DNA secrets into a huge industry. There are now dozens of direct-to-consumer DNA tests available, and millions of people have spit in a tube to have their DNA analyzed and added to those massive databases. For some of them, like the sisters that Amy Doxer Marcus first interviewed and others she's going to introduce us to today, that simple act has complicated consequences and opened up new questions about how our DNA defines us, or doesn't, and whether the technology is changing how we define family. So you'd written a number of stories, and then in March, you went to this event at Harvard Medical School. Can you tell me a little bit about that? We had actually done a story about Danny Shapiro. I had interviewed her when her new book came out. The book was called Inheritance, and it was a memoir about her taking a DNA test and discovering that the father who raised her wasn't her biological father. 
I was interested in going to her event because the events started attracting a lot of people who didn't just want to talk about the book, but also wanted to share DNA stories. At that event, during the Q&A, a woman stood up. I wasn't expecting anything dramatic, but she said that she had taken a DNA test, that she had learned that the person she thought was her father was actually not her biological father. And she just turned and asked us, and she said to all of us, can you please help me find my father? So I learned that her name is Pamela Powell. I did the DNA test because I've always wanted to know more about my family of origin. My mother was an only child. My father that I thought was my father, I knew very little about his family. Pamela had a lot of questions about her identity. My mother started getting dementia, and so her losing her memory I think was part of it as well, that I felt like I needed to retrieve something before there was no possibility of it. When she took the test and got the results back, it showed that she had a pretty high percentage of Eastern European Jewish ancestry. She's not Jewish, and she didn't know anyone in her family of Jewish ancestry. So that was a surprise. But she told me that she didn't really pursue it all that much at first because she knew that her mother was of Polish ancestry. So her first thought was, maybe some generations ago, we had folks of Jewish ancestry in our family background, and maybe they hid their ancestry. Maybe it just got lost in time. So even that didn't exactly set her off. The tipping point was she was a little bit curious and so intrigued, she asked her sister if she would also take the test. So then when her results came back, she said, hmm, nothing Jewish on my results. She sent me the results and she was more predictable and mine didn't match. Each company has its own way of doing the algorithm. It's not always clear what goes into their algorithm, but overall, it's based on how many people are in their own data set and what the backgrounds of those people are because they're making all kinds of comparisons. So sometimes your percentage of your ethnicity may change as more people take the test and as they revise and continue to change their algorithms. Pamela received an additional report from Ancestry that actually increased the percentage of her Eastern European Jewish ancestry. So again, going from 44% to around 51%, 52% was another point where she said, hmm, I'm actually pretty confused about this. I think I'm going to call Ancestry and talk to somebody on the phone. The representative started out by saying, have you considered? Have you considered? And I said that I have a different father than my sister because it was starting to become clear to me that there might be something else going on. And she said, yeah. Is this typical? They get a result. They think it's going to be just finding out more about their heritage. And then they start finding out about their family. I think that people are actually interested in all these things. But in terms of finding out surprising things about your family, That's because there is a feature that if you or and the other customers that are in your family tree agree, you can find out who you are biologically connected to. And what they'll do is the companies will 
rank from highest to lowest who you have the most common DNA with. So for example, if you know your sibling has taken a test, they should be pretty high on your ranking because you're more likely to have common DNA segments with a sibling or with a parent or with a child. So many people, when they get the results back and they choose this feature, they're, again, not expecting any surprises. Then when they look at the list, they may see that their sibling that they grew up with that they know took a test is not on their list, and that's a big red flag. Or they may get a list that has very high matches with a name they've never heard of before. And while many of us may not know our extended relatives all that well, people in general have a good sense of, you know, who your siblings are and who your first cousins are, some people even more extended than that. So when they see a lot of names high up on that list, that also can set off a lot of questions. I am Carol Davis. I am a family genealogist in mid-Michigan. I've been fascinated by the work of my great-grandmother, Maude Robinson. I'm the one who, you know, came across the Pandora's box and didn't just open it. I, I took the key and turned it and opened it. Carol Davis is a family historian. She's a genealogist. She's been doing this for years, digging through records, going to cemeteries and, you know, looking at the gravestones. Being the family historian for me is problem solving and also a little detective work. She had a great-grandmother who had this extensive family history that she inherited and she would use that book. Carol asks her parents to take DNA tests because she's looking for more genealogical leads. She wants to confirm some things in, you know, from hundreds of years ago, and she thinks that the DNA will help her get a lead. But, of course, she's a curious genealogist, and so she checks off the box that she wants to find out who the matches are. She checks in very frequently to see. All these new relatives start popping up. But those were usually more distant cousins, you know, second, third, fourth cousins. You know, that's often not a surprise. It's not surprising that you don't know who your fourth or fifth cousin is. But one day she's checking, and all of a sudden... About a year after my dad took the DNA test, a cousin popped up that was a closer match. She fit in with a certain branch of the tree, which said she would be about my generation, but I knew she didn't technically fit in anywhere with our known family. Now that's a surprise. First cousins share a common grandparent. That's someone very close to you. She reaches out and she says to this person, hi, I see that you're a first cousin match with my father. I'm very interested in seeing how we connect. Would you like to hear more? It turns out that this person's name is Kit Pull. And Kit writes back and says, I definitely like to connect. I'm adopted. So I don't know a lot about my biological parents, and I would be very interested in learning more and even meeting you. Carol chose the meeting place. She wanted to meet at the library in Hastings, Michigan. And that is a place where her great-grandmother lived and grew up. Her great-grandmother donated a copy of their family history book to the Hastings Library. And she thought it would be interesting to show Kit, you know, some of the documents and, and just be in person and be in the place where her relatives were connected. And I drove there with Carol. We waited for Kit to arrive with her husband. And we were standing outside the library, and Kit jumps out of the car, and she runs across the street 
and she just she just grabs Carol. They they had this this bear hug. Like they didn't want to let each other go. Did you notice any similarities between them? When they met and they pulled apart, one of the first things Carol said to me, she noticed that Kit is very tall, very lean person. And she told both of us, she said, I can see a family resemblance with Maud. You know, Maud's nickname was Slim. You look like her. Sometimes it's just those little quirky traits almost, or the way someone smiles or tilts their head or the way they laugh. When Kit laughs, I can hear my grandmother's, we called it a cackle, but she just had, you know, this really bright, cheerful laugh that, you know, her voice would crack. And when Kit laughed, I heard that. And there's just something in you that resonates a little bit with those, those tiny pieces. That must have been a really amazing moment. And it sounds like it was a really powerful moment for both of them, very positive. Was everyone in the family feeling the same way? Carol has a large extended family, and she was pretty nervous about how people would react. She had done all the family tree, and she knew that the highest likelihood was that Kit's biological father was likely one of four brothers. And all of those brothers had children. They had been married and had children. And so Carol knew that however this turned out, somebody was probably going to be surprised and that one of her cousins or some of her cousins were likely to discover they had a half-sibling that they didn't know about. It was such a surprise to everyone who Kit's father was. Out of all of my dad's uncles, Kit's dad was the stand-up guy who would help anyone with anything, very generous with his time, hard worker. He wasn't the kind of guy you would see going out to the bar or parties or that type of thing. So it was really a shocker even in the moment when I was sitting with Kit and looking at the mathematics of the DNA matches and figuring that it had to be Richard. It, it It was a shock to me as well. And so she didn't tell everyone in the wider family right away about it. She brought in her father. She brought in some cousins. But she had a lot of trepidation about how they might react. I've really only been in contact with Kit's sister, half-sister. And she's been the one to connect with her brothers. I know a couple of them have said they really aren't interested in meeting another sibling. But some of the other cousins in my dad's generation, you know, have pushback saying, you know, well, even if the DNA says that that's who her father is, family is a lot more than just having blood relation. Family is also growing up together and having those shared experiences. And while I agree with that, in a sense, I also know that Kit is a blood relative, and there are sometimes those characteristics and familiarities of someone, you know, who has certain personality traits or gestures or, you know, their eyes look a certain way that you go, yeah, we're, we're connected somehow. This is one of the big questions when ancestry becomes family, and all of a sudden the questions of anonymity or the questions of secrets, family secrets, start to be unearthed. Why did she 
go ahead and meet with Kit and try to bring her into the family fold? First of all, I think she felt deep compassion for Kit's search for her genetic identity. Kit did not choose to be brought into this world. (laughs) She's not just, you know, going around and knocking on doors and looking for a family to belong to. The DNA said, you know, she's a blood relation of ours. I think that our family identity is composed of many different components. Most of us think of family as the people that we grow up with. That's the first family that we know. But the biological relationship with people who may be strangers to us I think has an enormous pull on people as well. There's a lot of research going on in this field right now. I'm Alondra Nelson. I'm a professor of social science at the Institute for Advanced Study in Princeton, New Jersey, and president of the Social Science Research Council. Dr. Alondra Nelson wrote a book about it. She focused primarily on race and what you can learn about race and racial identity through DNA testing. But her work has taken on this sort of larger focus as well, just on identity and the ethical implications of that in general. The genealogy reality television shows have names like, who do you think you are? The commercials that the companies use show individuals who are getting test results and who are narrating that they thought they were one person before and now imagine that they're somebody else. But what all of these narrative accounts fail to do is to really be, I think, honest with consumers about the fact that the test is never about you only and that a genetic test is always implicating those who came before you, those who live in the present with you, and those who will come after you. And genetic information of any of us has information about our biological parents, about siblings, people we're related to in in this sort of present plane. And that means that we're making what feel like very individual, bold individual choices. We are making choices for families, for communities, for siblings, for people who are in any way biologically related to us, whether or not we know who they are. There are so many people now in the database that someone can use that information and in conjunction with social media postings, Facebook, archives that are online, genealogical records, that you are able to connect with people who don't even take a test themselves. I think one of the things that people don't think about is that when you make a decision about taking a test— you are also going to have an impact on the genetic privacy of everybody who's related to you. I was thinking about the example of Stephen Wald. My wife is looking at me and says, what's wrong? And I just said, my daddy's not my daddy. Stephen wasn't expecting to find a big surprise. And in fact, when he got his ancestry report back, it was exactly what he expected. He knew he was of Jewish ancestry. That's how he had been raised, and that was the ancestry that all of his family shared. So he sees that on his report, and he doesn't even pay attention to it because that's exactly what he's expecting. But this, again, goes back to some of the randomness of it. One night, he's just sort of playing around on the ancestry site, and he decides to search for the name of one of his relatives who is the big genealogist and a family historian, and he knows that she's taken an ancestry test. I scroll down, it it takes you through primary family members, first cousins, second cousins, you know, down through third and fourth cousins. And of course, I cannot find her information. And that is the first really big flag that something is going on here that he had no idea. 
Stephen, when he was talking to one of his cousins and sort of talking about his surprise that something might be going on with his paternity, the cousin revealed a big secret. She told him that years ago, her mother, who was Stephen's aunt, had told her a family secret, which was that Stephen's parents had used a sperm donor in order to conceive Stephen and his sister. Stephen goes into this, like, three-day marathon immersion where I think he barely left his computer. It got quiet. You know, I was on Ancestry DNA and 23andMe like somebody who would be new to a dating site or to Street Easy who's not buying real estate but they sit up all night addicted to just looking for information. A lot of people really get into the detective work part of it. And if you're very good at it, You can start with the results, the genetic results. You can start building rough family trees. And then you can use all kinds of online information that's available. And Stephen did that. He dug into obituaries. He dug into wedding announcements. He he researched the sperm donor program at the hospital where he knew he had been born. He looked for familiar names for what turned up on his DNA test. He really did the detective work, and he was able to identify someone that he believed was likely related to his sperm donor, was probably the biological child of his sperm donor and thus his half-sibling. Stephen identifies a woman who he believes is his half-sibling, and he obtains her phone number and makes a cold call to her. And she was driving in her car with her husband, and her husband saying, Who are you talking to? Hang up. What kind of, you know, thinking it's perhaps some kind of scam call. And her response to her husband was, no, 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 I think I have a new brother on the phone. I can't hang up. I was amazed that he had the courage to even call someone cold with such overwhelming and potentially shocking information. And I was really amazed that the woman didn't hang up the phone on him. Were any of his hopes about having a connection, having similarities Did any of those come true? So Stephen was able to ask his half-sibling a lot of questions. You know, what were some of our father's mutual hobbies? What were, you know, what were things that they, you know, that he liked to do? And he was very surprised. I mean, he collects Lalique glass, and so did his biological father. He likes French Art Deco furniture. So did his biological father. He's a snappy dresser. His half-sibling told him, so was my dad. He and his half-sister have met. She invited him to her 40th wedding anniversary party, and he's invited her to his home. She walked in, and her eyes opened wide, and she goes, oh, my God. She said, my father would have moved in and never left. She said, it feels like it's his house. I think for Stephen, it was extremely meaningful. He was very quick to tell me that he had a wonderful childhood. He adored his parents and still adores them and still says, the man that raised me is my father. This is the man I call dad. He was, he is my dad, he was my dad. But I think that it made him think a lot about nature versus nurture. It's just validation, perhaps. Oh, this is why I am the way I am. I never really thought that much about it. My parents used to say, I don't know where you and your sister get your taste level or what you, you know, your ways about you, uh, because Daddy and I certainly aren't like this. And we would just laugh it off, thinking, you know, we were growing up in a different generation than my parents, but maybe there's more to it. 
I think he's really excited and happy to have this new connection. He wants to continue to develop a relationship with her. He feels like, you know, it's very late in life. He's already in his 60s. So, of course, it's not going to be the same relationship he has with a sister that he grew up with. But he's very eager to have a new person in his life. Yeah, it's like we're getting a late start 60 odd years later, but it's, there's a word in, in Yiddish, beshert, and it means if it's meant to be, it's meant to be. So in the very beginning, we talked about Pamela Powell. That was the woman at the Harvard event who was looking for her biological father. While you were there, there were a lot of other people around her who were trying to help her out and who suggested that they could potentially do some searching for her. One of them, I think she even called her DNA angel. What did you find out about that search? So I decided to contact Pamela again. I was so curious after our first encounter about what really happened if her DNA angel was able to find her biological father. And when I contacted her, she told me that the DNA angel had come through for her. She recommended that in order to expand the potential pool of genetic matches, that Pamela go ahead and take a second DNA test from a different company. She did that. And that did, in fact, help because Pamela connected. There were more, even more matches in the second database. And so by combining all of this information, her DNA angel very rapidly was able to build a very robust family tree and call Pamela and tell her, I think I found your biological father. As I recall, it was later that evening or later that day even, she sent me the obituary of my biological father and said, I think I'm like 98.9% sure this is your father. And then I said, oh my God, I know this man. I recognize this name. She knew that he was the former husband of one of her mother's close friends. She was shocked. I definitely had a period of being very angry at her. Really, really furious. How could you have not told me? That's completely unfair. I visit my mother every week, and I did not visit her for two weeks because <laughs> I was so angry at her. I think for Pamela, like for many people, one of the emotional parts of the journey is that she's never going to get all the answers that she wants to get. Her mother is still alive, but her mother has dementia. And so she's not able to answer all of the many questions that Pamela has. I know roughly where they spread my father's ashes, but I don't know exactly where in a particular park. Pamela has reached out to some of her half-siblings, and it's a slow process. They've answered some of her questions. I'd like to know which harbor it was where my father would stand and watch the boats come in and out. You know, it was that Boston Harbor where I worked on boats. I mean, you know, could he have been looking out over the harbor while I was working on a boat? I, you know, like, I would just like more connection. But I don't feel like they owe me anything. But I think when it comes to your identity, the more questions you ask, the more answers you get, the more questions you still have. I think you always want to know more. There's always this feeling that you don't have the complete story. Definitely, I still feel sad. I've probably almost every time I visit my mother, I leave crying. 
Maybe we never really know the whole story anyway about our parents, but there's just so many gaps. After all you've discovered through your DNA journey, what are your thoughts on the meaning of family? How would you define family? That is a really big question. Um, I think my mother teaches me something about that, and I'll probably cry again if I say this, but um, that even with her losing her memory, that she still knows something of me and that her essence is still intact and that I know that. So that's probably like a root of family. But then I guess when you come to the DNA stuff, it's like, well, what is what is the knowing that you have with somebody you share DNA with? You know, if I spent more time with my half-brothers, would I see myself in them? Would they see themselves in me? I don't know, but that's that's kind of the thing I'd like to know. I'd like to know more of. What we have in common with people who share our specific genetic code and how we connect with them is at the heart of many of the DNA stories we've heard. Over time, as the databases grow and the revelations they contain ripple out, it's likely even more people will be asking those questions. In the future, that may lead us to rethink, reconfigure, and even redefine our notions of family. I think ultimately we may also end up with DNA test families. It could be this whole, you know, number of people that you find who perhaps are your half-siblings or new cousins that you didn't know, and you're connected through a DNA test, and you have to decide how much you want to build the relationship with them. I was thinking about the example of Stephen Wald. He wasn't comfortable saying dad because he thinks of the person who raised him as dad. So I did ask him, well, what what do you call this man? And he said, I've struggled with what word to use. I use donor dad. You know, that was a word he sort of came up with. I think it's possible that our language is going to change a lot. I think people are going to come up with new descriptions, new names. A lot of it will depend on what your relationship ultimately is with the new people that get introduced to you and how comfortable you feel with identifying them and placing them inside your existing identity and your existing family structure. I think there's probably going to be a lot of people who don't use half sibling. They're just going to say sibling. There's going to be a lot of people who don't want to say donor dad. They're just going to say dad. And that's going to depend. But I think it's going to be fascinating to see how we look at families and even what names we use to call them. The Future of Everything is a production of The Wall Street Journal. This episode was based on reporting by Amy Doxer-Marcus. It was written by Amy and me with contributions from Phoebe Wang. Amanda Llewellyn is our producer. Editing support from Stephanie Ilgenfritz and Gerard Cole. Thanks to Michelle Ma and Nikki Waller from the WSJ Live team. Special thanks to Pamela Powell, Carol Davis, and Stephen Wald and their families. Our technical director is Jacob Gorski. I'm Kateri Yogam. Thanks for listening. This message comes from Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, destination-focused dining, and cultural enrichment on board and on shore. 
And every Viking voyage is all-inclusive, with no children and no casinos. Discover more at Viking.com.